What makes Christianity different from all other faiths and religions is not that we pray, but it's that we know the one to whom we pray. You see, we don't pray as Muslims reciting pre-made prayers to a God who cannot be known. We don't pray like Buddhists emptying our minds and looking within for answers. We don't pray as new age spiritualists or animists who pray to everything but to nothing in particular. We are not microscopic organisms pounding on the door of some ogre's castle in hopes of mercy. We don't pray to some bland, generic deity or or supreme being or intelligent designer in the hopes of cosmic benevolence. No, what makes Christianity profoundly unique and different from all other faiths and religions is not that we pray but that we know the one to whom we pray. You see, we pray with confidence to the God we know personally by name, to the God who has spoken, to the God who has revealed himself in history as a literal, historical human being. I mean, that's almost too astounding to fathom, isn't it? I mean, we know the one to whom we pray. We even know his name. His name is Yahweh. And he is a father. And he has revealed himself. And he has spoken in the pages of Holy Scripture. So when we pray, we are not groping in the darkness for a distant deity, launching our wishes into the stratosphere, just hoping that he's going to listen to us. No, we are those who pray to the God who became man for us and for our salvation and who promised without even so much as batting an eye, whatever it is you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You see, that... That is prayer. And speaking of prayer, that almost unbelievable transaction where a fragile human being speaks to the creator who has more power than 10,000 neutron bombs. Speaking of that, that's exactly where we're going this morning. If you were here last week, my friend Seth Miller, he preached on Luke 18 on the pleading, the desperate widow. And Christ used this this analogy, this, this parable for urgent, desperate, dependent prayer. And I wanted to strike while the iron is hot and continue to talk about desperate, needy, urgent prayer. We have to talk about power through prayer for an impossible mission because we have an impossible mission, do we not? which means we need infinite power to carry it out, which also means we need to pray. We need to pray. And you remember here the scene in John 14, don't you? The scene, as you know, as Christ is with his disciples in a rented upstairs room in downtown Jerusalem. The occasion is their last meal together, just minutes before Christ is arrested and betrayed and tortured and crucified and killed. The general feeling in the room was one of fear and and despair as the disciples had this sneaking suspicion that something terrible was going to happen, and they were right, something terrible was going to happen. 
And yet even with the weight of eternity, crushing Jesus like an avalanche, even though he is about to endure an all-night escapade of being beaten within an inch of his life beyond recognition and then crucified the next morning, even with all that, Christ calms his panicked disciples and he speaks to them some of the most important words ever spoken in history. Words not merely designed to comfort them for a few days while they grieve, but words even designed to empower them for a mission. You see, that's why John 13 through 16 is in your Bible. These are the final words of Christ to his disciples before his execution. And note this, one of the subjects about which he speaks before he is arrested is the explosive, life-shaping, world-changing act of worship we call prayer. And the reason why Christ talks about prayer in his final moments with his disciples is because the time was coming when his disciples were going to need to pray more than ever. You see, he was going to leave them after the crucifixion was the resurrection. After the resurrection was his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. And he wasn't going to be around anymore. He wasn't going to be with them anymore. And yet he wants them to know that although he is going to leave them, he's not actually going to leave them. No, he's going to provide what he feels is the next best thing to being physically with them. And that is the ability to approach him in prayer and to ask him for things that are absolutely impossible because that's what prayer is. It's exactly what it is. Not some mystical act of piety where we think we hear God's voice, but rather it is the means through which Jesus Christ does the absolutely impossible. You see, prayer is the urgent blood and guts act of calling the headquarters of heaven for everything as, that we need as the church advances against the powers of darkness. That's what prayer is. And I realize that for many people, maybe even some of you in this room, although you would never dare to admit it publicly, that prayer can at times feel downright pointless, can it? I mean, we've all had enough times in our life trying to pray that felt like the essence of futility. Wandering of mind, deadness of heart, coldness and affection. Ten minutes go by and we realize we haven't even prayed a thing at all. I believe this morning will help you. I believe it will help you because the Lord of prayer himself, the Lord to whom we pray, will help you and inspire you and grip you and compel you and instruct you how to pray in such a way that not only gives you personal devotional delight, but also to pray in such a way that changes history for the glory of Christ. And if that's what you're interested in, and I know it is, then John 14, and specifically verses 12 through 14, is our destination. And if you like outlines and roadmaps, I have one. Here's where we're going. I want you to see from this text six realities about prayer. Six realities about prayer that you have to know to exalt Christ, to advance the plan, and change the world. No big deal. Six realities about prayer that you have to know to exalt Christ, to advance the plan, and to change the world. And ready or not, here we go. The first reality is this, number one. 
You must know the power available through prayer. You must know the unlimited power available through prayer. Now, what you cannot forget here is what Christ is doing in chapter 14. Because back in chapter 13, verse 33, Christ told his disciples that he had to leave them and they couldn't come with them. See, he had to die. He had to be slain for sinners like a sheep in the midst of wolves. He had to be resurrected. He had to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. He only had a few minutes left with his disciples and he wasn't going to be around and they couldn't come with him. Which if you're the disciples, those are gut-wrenching words to hear, are they not? And so they don't know what to make of this. They're fearful and they're anxious, and they're panicking, and yet in chapter 14, Christ immediately seizes control of the situation and gives their troubled hearts the comforting, soul-comforting benefits that they obtain through faith in him. And one of the benefits that they obtain through faith is the supernatural power through prayer to do the absolutely impossible. Speaking of power to do the impossible, look very carefully at what Christ says in verse 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Stop right there. You know the drill. You know the drill. When Christ says those words, you know that the very next words that are about to come out of his mouth are either going to be really controversial or really encouraging or both. And Christ doesn't disappoint. Because look what he says. The one who believes in me, the works which I do, he also will do. And greater things than these he will do because I proceed to the Father. Do you see? Encouraging and controversial all at the same time. Because notice, notice what he says. He says, the one who believes in him will do the very works that he has done. And as if that's not astonishing enough, he goes on to say that the one who believes in him will do even greater things than he has done. I mean, this is a shocking thing, isn't it? Because he just promised that those who believe in him will have access to the very kind of power to do the very kinds of works that he has done. What does this mean? Because I'll have you know that there are some groups of people who on the basis of this text thinks that every Christian should be able to perform miracles today. And not just miracles, but even greater miracles than Christ himself performed. And yet, is that actually what Christ is saying? Is that really what he's after here? Because I'll be honest with you, I don't see any of the people who believe that about this text, I don't see them doing any legitimate miracles of any kind. Certainly not miracles greater than what Christ does. I mean, I know these are fighting words, but I don't see them walking through hospitals healing entire floors. I don't see them walking through graveyards resurrecting hundreds of people out of their graves. And besides that, I don't think that's what this text is saying anyway. Because you can tell, you can tell that the interpretation of this text hinges on two significant things. Number one, the interpretation of verse 12 hinges on the meaning of the two words, works and greater. 
And number two, the interpretation of verse 12 hinges on the context. Because when Christ says, the one who believes in me will do the works that I have done, the word works certainly includes miraculous deeds performed by supernatural power. It certainly includes those things like healings, like raising people from the dead, of course. And the people to whom Christ is speaking, namely the apostles, they did those very kinds of things. So absolutely, Christ is holding out the possibility that power would be given to some to perform the very same kind of miracles that he himself had done. And yet, and yet, what you have to understand is that word works in John's gospel, that doesn't only include Miracles. It doesn't only describe miracles, and, and miracles weren't the only kind of works that Christ did either, were they? No, he did other things besides miracles, did he not? And so although Christ includes miracles here, he doesn't only mean miracles. Rather, he means that those who believe in him, get this, they will be given the power to perform all the necessary works of love and service and sacrifice required to fulfill the great commission. That's what he means. I'm going to say that again. You need to feel this. Although he includes miracles, he doesn't only mean miracles. He means you will be given all the power you need to perform all the necessary acts of love and service and sacrifice required to fulfill the great commission because nowhere in the Bible is it promised that every Christian in every age would be promised the power to do miracles, but every Christian in every age is promised the power to do the impossible and what's impossible is the Great Commission itself. But the other word, the other word in the text that we have got to get to the bottom of is that word greater. Greater, because Christ says, the one who believes in me shall do greater things than I have done. And that word greater can be understood in one of two different ways. Greater can either be understood as more spectacular more supernatural, greater in quality, superior to what Christ has accomplished, or, or great, Christ means greater in terms of extent and quantity and breadth and having a wider global impact beyond the borders of the land of Israel. And I believe Christ means option B. Because how can you get more quality and supernatural than raising people from the dead? Heck, how about raising yourself from the dead? That, that is the royal flush of miracles. So clearly, Christ must have in mind not greater in quality, but having a wider global impact beyond the rinky-dink land of Israel. Because think about it, think about it. In a little over a month from this day, 3,000 souls would get saved in Jerusalem. And about a dozen years from this moment, the gospel would have reached into Turkey and Syria and Italy and Greece. And about a hundred years from this moment, the gospel would be throughout North Africa into Europe, reaching as far as Spain. In 300 years from this moment, the gospel will have reached into Great Britain, Central Europe, into India, over to Russia, down into Saudi Arabia. That is what Christ is talking about. 
a wider global impact making its way into every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And you are a part of that. You sitting in this room. You are instruments of the Lord Jesus Christ to do greater things than he has done. Not greater in quality, but greater in quantity. And that's what we're trying to do here in this very room. I want this church to be a launch site for global ministry. And the reason why I do is because of texts like this. Because the potential of your lives to be used as instruments for Christ for the Great Commission, the potential of that is so unbelievably off the charts. And yet remember, remember also that I said that the interpretation of verse 12 hinges not only on the meaning of those two words, but the interpretation of verse 12 hinges on the context, which raises the question, doesn't it? Okay, then, well, what is the context? Because Christ is talking about the limitless power to do the impossible, and yet what does that even look like in 21st century America in real time? How do we get access to the kind of sovereign power about which, about which Christ speaks? Where does that come from? And the answer is, you ready? You ask for it. You ask for it. Because prayer is the context. How you get the power to do the absolutely impossible is through the instrumentality of prayer. That's what he's saying. And you know that's what he's saying because of the very next words that come out of his mouth, which leads us then to the second reality about prayer that you have to know. Number two, the unequaled place of prayer. The unequaled place of prayer. Because what you absolutely have to know about prayer is how it connects to God's plan. You gotta gotta know how prayer connects to God's plan because you know that God has a plan. A predestined plan before time to display his power and his supremacy. A predestined plan to save sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation and people and radically change people's lives. A plan which will culminate in the literal physical return of Jesus Christ to return his, to, to establish his literal kingdom on this planet. That is the plan. And, what you, and yet what you have to understand is that, is that prayer doesn't change God's plan. Prayer doesn't change what God has predestined. Rather, God accomplishes what he predestined through the prayers of his people. That's why prayer is so infinitely noble. Because it is God's way of making sure that everybody knows that the victory alone belongs to him. And you can see this in the text. For instance, I'm going to read verses 12 through 14 one more time. And I want you to listen very carefully for every single time Christ uses the verb do. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes in me, the works which I do, he also will do. And greater things than these he will do because I proceed to the Father. 
And whatever then you should ask in my name, this I will do in order that the Father would be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Do you hear it? Five times, three verses, he uses the verb do. Do you get the connection? The connection is, in the Christian life, you are called to do. Are you not? And yet, and yet, if you're doing the Christian life right, it's not just you doing the doing. You see, anything you do in dependence upon and in obedience to Jesus Christ, he is the one doing the doing through you. That's why prayer exists. It is the instrument through which Christ does the absolutely impossible, puts his sovereign power on open display. So consider this. If you want to see Christ work in your lives, if you want to see him do the absolutely impossible, if you want to see him change your life and overcome those hard-to-reach sins that never seem to go away, all you need to do is ask. All you need to do is ask, which is exactly what he says in verse 13. Look very carefully at the text. He says, and whatever then you should ask in my name, this I will do. Isn't that interesting to you? Christ doesn't actually use the word pray, does he? He uses the word ask, and that's really, really significant for three reasons. Number one, he uses the word ask because it means that he is willing and eager to answer. He wouldn't have told you to ask him for things if he wasn't willing to answer. He tells you to ask him for things because he loves to answer the prayers of his people. That's number one. Number two, he uses the word ask because he is generous and approachable. He's not stingy and tight-fisted like we are. He's not, he's not irritated when we ask him for things like we are. No, he wants, no, he demands that you ask him for what you need because he loves to provide his people with what they need the most. And he especially loves to do that through the instrumentality of prayer. And number three, he uses the word ask because he is protective and passionate about his glory. Don't you see the, the insane genius of prayer is that the one who gives the power is the one who gets the glory. He tells you to ask him for things because he wants it to be obvious to everyone that he and not you is the one who deserves the glory. Don't you see? He is willing and eager and generous and approachable and passionate about his glory. What are you waiting for? Ask him for what you need, Christ community. And consider how this changes our perception of Christ. For instance, if you came over to my house this afternoon and you knocked on the door and I invited you in and I welcomed you and I told you to come on in and make yourself at home and, and, and don't hesitate, just come on in, don't, don't hesitate to ask me for anything that you need, just anything you need, don't, you don't even have to ask, just come on in and if you need clothes to wear, you can rummage through my, my drawers if you're willing and, and if you're hungry, you can, you can rummage through the cupboards and the fridge and do not hesitate to ask, I am here to serve you. If I did that for you, my guess is you would be extremely overwhelmed by my generosity. Well, huh. 
I'm not offering that to you necessarily. <laughs> but the God of the universe is. Whatever you need for the struggles of the soul, whatever perplexing dilemmas in which you find yourself this morning, whatever impossible situations in your life that have no seeming resolution, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Do not hesitate. All you need to do is ask. This is God's universe. This is God's world. This is his plan. This is about his glory. You are his slave. What are you waiting for? Come on in. Make yourself at home. Ask for what you need because he loves to answer. He commands that you ask because he is eager to answer. And that brings us to the third reality about prayer that you have to know. Number three, the unrestricted possibilities of prayer. The unrestricted possibilities of prayer. And, you know, most of us, myself included, we can be real cowards when it comes to prayer, can't we? And if cowards is, is too strong of a word, nevertheless, we are so frequently afraid of praying the wrong thing in the wrong way that it winds up, winds up paralyzing us into prayerlessness. Almost like we work at a nuclear power plant where there's all these rigid protocols and strict procedures and we don't want to pray the wrong thing in case we blow the whole thing up. And yet in so doing, we forget the explosive life-changing potential of prayer. We simply don't remember that when it comes to prayer, there are breathtaking, unrestricted possibilities. For instance, notice what Christ says in verse 13. He says, and whatever then you should ask in my name, this I will do. Did you hear it? Whatever you ask. Whatever you ask, I will do it for you. Man, that is a risky thing to pray, isn't it? I mean, that's a risky thing for him to say. I mean, you, you, don't, you don't just offer that to people. You don't give kids the launch codes for nuclear weapons. And you don't give sinners whatever they ask for in prayer because they're just going to abuse it and, and, and exploit the system. Come on, Jesus, think it through here. And yet... Do you really think that Christ is offering without exception to just give us whatever we want simply because we ask it whenever we ask it? I mean, is that really what he's offering here? Like a blank check or poker chips that we can just kind of cash in to feed our lusts and tickle our fancies no matter how sinful or ridiculous it may be? I mean, is that what Christ is offering us? And I think we'd all agree, well, no, of course not. That's not what he's doing. And yet someone might say, well, okay, but, but he did say, whatever you ask, I will do it. So if he doesn't mean whatever, then what does he mean? Well, this is going to take some, some work, some intellectual rigor, but, but hang with me here. The word whatever in verse 13, get this, has already been defined by the word works in verse 12. You see, the works described in verse 12 that Christ does have already shaped what he means by the word whatever in verse 13. 
What I'm trying to say is the word whatever is not whatever you think it means. It is whatever Christ has already said that it means. And so there, there has to be some parameters here. And so what he means is simply this. He means whatever you need to obey my word, to bring me glory, to advance my plan, or to increase your joy in me forever. Just ask it, and it will be done for you. That's what he means by whatever. That's what he means. Whatever you need to obey his word, to bring him glory, to advance his plan, or to increase your joy in him forever, that's what he means by whatever. And my question is, is there anything that you need outside of those four things? Do you need something other than the power to obey his word, to bring him glory, to advance his plan, or to increase your joy in him forever? Is there anything that you need outside of those things? And you might be thinking, well, I, I need a good, good job. Does that, does that count? Well, of course it counts. Of course it counts, but, but the job that you get will be determined by Jesus Christ and the job that you get will be to advance his plan and to bring him glory. And someone might think, well, I would really like to get married. Does that fit in the whatever category? Well, of course it does. Of course it fits in the whatever category. But you see, it does if it brings him glory, advances his plan, or increases your joy in him forever. And if you're asking for something that's not to obey his word or to bring him glory or to advance his plan or to increase your joy in him forever, newsflash, you are asking for the wrong things. Don't you see? The reason why Christ says, whatever you ask, I will do it, is because he's making a statement about the essence of Christianity. And the essence of Christianity is that Christianity isn't just hard. Christianity is impossible. When he says, whatever, he is talking about the impossible things that he commands you to do. And so my question for you is this morning, what are the whatever's in your life for which you need prayer? In what particular areas of your life do you need power to obey the word of God? In what ways does your life not currently bring glory to Jesus Christ, but you would really, really like it to? In what ways do you want to be used to advance the Great Commission? What do you need from Christ to increase your joy in Him forever? See, do you not realize the staggering potential of prayer to do the impossible? And I don't mean irrational or ridiculous things like, you know, like uh, changing the past or making square circles or, or magically putting a billion dollars in your bank account or making you a great athlete or magically making hair reappear on the top of your head. I don't mean things like that. I mean power to obey his word, to bring him glory, to advance his plan, or to increase your joy in him forever. And that brings us to the fourth reality about prayer. The fourth reality about prayer that you have to know, number four, you must know the ultimate provision for prayer. You must know the ultimate provision for prayer. 
And by that I mean, on what basis do we know for certain that our prayers will be answered? How do we know that? How do we know that the things we launch into the stratosphere, Christ actually hears and he actually answers? Like what basis, what guarantee do we have that our prayers are not only heard, but they are answered? Well, we know because of what Christ says in verse 13. Look very carefully at what he says. He says, and whatever then you should ask in my name, this I will do. Do you see that? In my name. That's the issue. Like, that is the deal breaker of the universe when it comes to prayer. Do you know why? Because to pray in the name of Christ is not some Harry Potter magic spell or some you know, secret password or some pretty please with cherries on top way to manipulate God to answer our prayers. No, to pray in the name of Christ means two things at the exact same time. You ready? Number one, to pray in Christ's name means that the, that the only right we have to approach the throne of God at all, not to mention that he would actually answer our prayers, is not based at all upon anything within us, but is based solely on the merits and the value and the achievements of Jesus Christ alone. In other words, to pray in the name of Christ not only means that he bought with his blood the right to approach the throne of God with your prayers, but that he bought the right that your prayers would be answered by the God of the universe. He bought that for you. It's not just a given. Your prayers being heard and answered was a gift purchased by the cross. I mean, you think about it like this. When you apply for a job, you are required usually to provide references, right? Credible people of high reputation who can speak on your behalf. This is infinitely greater than that. It's infinitely greater than that. To pray in the name of Christ isn't merely to use him as a credible reference that might tip the scales our way. No, he is the one who purchased the right not only to be heard, but also the guarantee that our prayers will be answered. He bought that for you. In other words, all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished is the only provision and guarantee that our prayers matter to the God of the universe. And number two, to pray in the name of Christ, you have to understand this, this is, that's a synonym for his glory. To pray in the name of Christ is a synonym for his glory. Did you know that? Because it's true. To pray in Christ's name means that we understand at the outset that the motive and intention of Christ in all our prayers is to put himself on display for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. And I just want you to know, this, this is everywhere in the Bible. This is everywhere. Psalm 106, verse 8, God saved Israel for the sake of his name. For Samuel 12, 22, God didn't destroy Israel. Why? For the sake of his name. Isaiah 43, 25, God forgives our sins and wipes out our transgressions. Why? For the sake of his own name. 
Ezekiel 36, 22, God says that he will save Israel again in the future for the sake of his own name. Isaiah 48, 11, God actually says that everything he does, he does for the sake of his own name. And Psalm 23, verse 3, God says that he leads us in paths of righteousness. Why? For the sake of his name. It means his glory. So to pray in the name of Christ is not some Christian cliche that magically does anything simply because we utter the words. Rather, it is a reminder to us that the ultimate motivating intention of Christ in all of our prayers is to put his power and supremacy on open display. Which means the question is, for what do you need prayer the most even at this moment? What what do you need prayer for the most? What struggles in your life at this moment would you most love to see victory? What family drama or dilemma is most in need of Christ's sovereign intervention? What fears, what anxieties, what pressures plague your life even at this very moment? Because we all got them. We all got him. How would you love, most love to grow spiritually in the month of March? Do you see? Christ wants to free you and to liberate you this morning. And and, and know this, that your prayers don't have to be profound or poetic or polished or, or, or anything like that. They just have to be in the name of Christ because that is the ultimate provision and guarantee that Christ not only hears our prayers, but answers our prayers. Which brings us to the fifth reality. We're almost home. The fifth reality about prayer that you have to know, number five, you must know the unified purpose of prayer. You must know the unified purpose of prayer. Because one of the the things I love about prayer is that prayer is the proof that on our own, all we are are small, brittle, easily replaceable little cogs in this massive machine called the Great Commission. In other words, prayer humbles us as needy and it exalts God as self-sufficient. Prayer puts God in his rightful place as the all-sufficient giver of grace and prayer puts us in our rightful place as the needy beneficiaries and recipients of that grace. Or to put it even another way, he gets glory as a limitless provider and we get grace as weak and needy people. That's the deal, that's the plan, and that is good for us. And we see this at the end of verse 13. Look at the text. He says, and whatever then you ask in my name, this I will do. Why? For what purpose? To what end? In order that the Father would be glorified in the Son. And there it is again. The grand theme of the glory of God, which is the meaning and purpose of 
everything and everything that happens in the universe. There is nothing beyond the glory of God. That is the be all and all of life and ministry and reality and eternity. Because when Christ says that your prayers will be answered that or so that the Father would be glorified in the Son, He is articulating, He is declaring the ultimate defining reason why prayer ultimately exists. And why does it exist? What did He say? He said that the Father would be glorified in the Son. Isn't that interesting? Prayer is not for the glory of the Father alone. Nor is it for the glory of the Son alone. Prayer isn't even for the glory of the Father and of the Son. Rather, what did the text actually say? It says that Christ will answer our prayer so that the Father will be glorified in the Son, by the Son, through the Son. Which sounds pretty cool, but what does that even mean? Well, what it means is that whether you like it or not, when you talk about prayer, you have entered into Trinitarian territory. (laughs) That even as something as seemingly simple and basic as talking to God is a profoundly Trinitarian act. See, you can't have one without the other. The Father and the Son, they're not sold separately. When when the Father is glorified, it is always in and through the person of Christ. And when Christ is glorified, it always points back to the Father. When one is glorified, the other is glorified also simultaneously at the exact same time, which is exactly why prayer exists, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And you might be thinking, so? So what? How's that relevant for me? How does that help me to pray? Well, it is profoundly relevant for you. Because you were created to live for the glory of the triune God. And prayer is one of the most strategic ways that happens. You know why? Because the very act of prayer is designed to humble us as needy and to exalt God as all-sufficient. Because all prayer is, is the open admission to God that apart from Him, you can do nothing. All prayer is, is a turning away from ourselves to God in the confidence that He will provide everything we need to accomplish everything that He commands. And when you feel that, you will begin to pray. And when you pray like that, God will be glorified. And so how you glorify God How you display God as the supreme treasure of your life is not by being insanely talented or gifted or brilliant, but by being insanely dependent upon the one who spoke galaxies into existence. So the question is, Christ community, how are you doing glorifying God in your life? How are you doing? Which means I'm asking you, how are you doing being needy and desperate and dependent and vulnerable before God in prayer? What I mean is, are our packed calendars, 
and psychotic attachment to our smartphones, are, are, are those really fulfilling the deepest longings of our souls? Now, don't get me wrong, I have a smartphone and I play Fruit Ninja just like everybody else. But we need to wake up this morning. We need to wake up. We need to wake up at how much nothing we spend our time doing. Because without prayer, without praying, apart from prayer, all of our scurrying about, all of our talking, all of our wall-to-wall activities, all of our relational hangouts, apart from prayer, without praying, amounts to nothing. For most of us, the voice of self-reliance is ten times louder than the bells that toll for the hours of prayer. And yet the voice cries out, does it not? You must answer that text. You must read that email. You must run that errand. You must finish that assignment. You must write that paper. You must hang out with that person. You must do this thing. You must, you must, you must, you must. And yet the bell still tolls softly in the background. Without me, you can do nothing. We pray not merely because that's just what Christians do, but because that is the way the Father is glorified in the Son. That is the unified purpose of prayer, which brings us last but not least to number six. You must know the unrivaled provider through prayer. You must know the unrivaled provider through prayer. Now, a little Bible study hint for you. When you see the same things repeated in the same passage, when they don't necessarily have to be repeated, mark my words, it is always intentional and it's always significant, which is exactly what verse 14 is. Look at the text. Verse 14. He says, if you should ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You see? An almost exact replica of verse 13, which means Christ is up to something profound here. Because you know how it goes. When something sounds too good to be true, the rule of thumb is, it usually is. But you see this promise about prayer? This is the one exception. Christ repeats the staggering promise about prayer to make sure that, to make doubly sure that the disciples and you know just what it is exactly that you have in your possession. Because again, you have to understand the disciples, the disciples, they are pretty bent out of shape right now. They are unraveled because of what he just told them in chapter 13, that he was going to leave them and they couldn't come with them. And yet he wants them to know that although he is leaving them, he's not actually leaving them. After he's gone, he will be just as close to them as the words in their mouths and the thoughts in their heads through prayer. So he repeats what he says from verse 13 because he wants you to know, yes, you heard me right. I meant what I said and I do what I say. You ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. And yet, and yet similar though it may be, verse 14 is not the same as verse 13, is it? They're alike, but they're not identical. 
There are some differences between those verses, and those differences are incredibly significant. But again, notice what Christ says. Just, just be good detectives of the text. Christ says, if you should ask anything in my name, there it is again, that explosive word, anything. And ironically, the word anything is just two letters in the Greek language, and yet into those two Greek letters are crammed infinite possibilities. Christ literally hands us a blank check of prayer. He says, there it is. Fill it out. Ask for what you need. Anything you need to obey my word, to bring me glory, to advance my plan, or increase your joy in me forever, just ask for it and it will be done for you. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not even in your own lifetime or in the way you expected, but if it will be to help you obey his word, bring him glory, advance his plan, or increase your joy in him forever, mark my words, it will be done for you. The salvation of Muslims or some unsaved family member or straying kid that, that hates the gospel, ask it some stubborn, hard-to-reach sin that has you in its grip? Ask it. Complex, tangled relationship issues that don't have any seeming solution? Ask it. Difficult circumstances and people of which there doesn't seem to be any resolution, it never hurts to ask. In fact, it would be a sin if you didn't. Oh, how Christ wants to liberate you and free you and inspire you and compel you and teach you to pray like never before because it is the means through which Jesus Christ does the absolutely impossible. And yet that brings us to the crucial difference between verse 14 and verse 13. It all has to do with whom Christ identifies as the object of prayer because up until now, up until now, the disciples have probably just assumed that, well, the Father is the one to whom you pray, right? And that's true, and you should, and you must. But controversial and shocking though it may be, the Father is not the only one to whom you pray. Look very carefully at verse 14 again. If you should ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I mean, do you hear how Christocentric prayer is? If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it for you. I mean, is, is that an obvious claim to be God or what? I mean, that, that is not audacious thing. That is outrageous to pray that, to, to say that to his disciples. When you pray, Jesus says, you pray to me. You pray to me. I am the object of your prayers. <laughs> and someone might say, whoa, whoa, hold the phones here. Jesus, you, you, you said, Father, hallowed be your name. What, what, what are you talking about here? And that's true. You pray to the Father also. But again, notice the point. Although he is leaving them, he's not actually leaving them. 
He's always within talking distance, within praying distance as the object of prayer. He is the unrivaled provider through prayer. Now, now again, don't, don't be baffled here. You don't have to pick and choose between God the Father and God the Son as if there's some sort of Trinitarian custody battle and where you're going to make one jealous if you don't pray to the other. That, that's not what he's saying. You can pray to either one. You can pray to the triune God as a whole, but don't miss the point here. He identifies himself as the object and answerer and provider through prayer because he wants you to know, Christ community, that Jesus Christ is way more than some controversial rabbi who did nice things for people. He's way more than some revolutionary who merely died for a good cause. He's way more than some commendable figure in history who merely led by example. No, he is God himself who never had a beginning, who spoke galaxies into existence, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who rules the universe with absolute ease, who became a man for us and for our salvation, and who promised, without even so much as batting an eye, whatever you ask me in my name, I will do it for you. So the question is, are you going to take him up on his offer? Are you willing to see prayer with fresh eyes this morning, not merely as a duty to be done, but as a weapon to be wielded? Are you willing to see that prayer is not some mystical act of piety where we think we hear God's voice, but it is the instrument through which Jesus Christ does the absolutely impossible are you ready to see that prayer is not merely, not only for your own personal devotional delight, but it is the way that God changes history for the glory of Christ? Because I don't know what your prayer life is like right now, and I close with this. I don't know what your prayer life is like right now. It may not be satisfying. It may not be urgent. It may not be passionate. It may not even be in existence right now. That's all right. That's okay. Don't, don't beat yourself up. That is why texts like John 14, 12 through 14 is in your Bibles. Not merely to remind you that you should pray or that you could pray if you wanted but that you would be simply out of your minds not to pray. Because the words of the old hymn are still profoundly true. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Speaking of prayer, let's go to the throne one more time. O oh Christ, High King of Heaven, 
O Lord, we give thanks to you that you are the answerer of prayer. O Lord, in one sense, it's really befuddling, confusing to us why prayer is a thing. It's hard. It's challenging. It's difficult. It's really hard for us to do, Lord. We just confess. We just come to you in open confession. This is really hard for us. And yet, and yet at the same time, Lord, we do see, we do see why you gave us prayer. Because, Lord, the very act of praying, it looks like it's immobile. It looks stationary. It looks powerless. And yet that's the point, Lord. That you who give the power is the one who gets the glory. That prayer, Lord, it puts us in our rightful place as needy beneficiaries of grace. And it puts you in your rightful place as the all-sufficient giver of grace. I'm begging you right now, Lord. I'm begging you, and I don't know what this is going to look like, and you can answer it if you want or not. But Lord, I'm asking you that you would unleash a movement of prayer in our people that this church has never seen before. I'm pleading with you, O Lord, that there would be a conviction deep in the souls of these people, O Lord, that we would be so utterly persuaded of our powerlessness, of our spiritual paralysis, of our inability to do anything on our own, that we we would be a people who daily, daily plead with you for grace, O Lord, because I'm convinced that if we are a people, the general general atmosphere of which is that we are needy and desperate and dependent upon prayer, then, O Lord, I believe that we could be a church that makes an impact for eternity, a church, O Lord, that knows that we have nothing to offer you except weakness. So I ask and I plead and I beg in your name, O Christ, so that the Father may be glorified in you. And it's in your matchless name that we pray. Amen.